So if, uh, if I've played my cards right, I think we should be able to get through um, Revelation 18 this week, um, which then should put us at 19, 20, 21. We should effectively finish next week uh, on week 6B. So that's the goal for tonight, um, and I think, I think we're going to make it, depending on your questions. We stopped last week just shy of Armageddon. So we started the seven bowls of God's wrath. We kind of read a little bit. Um, so we're going to make a running start up to that, get us up to Armageddon. We'll finish out the bowls, and that'll move us into the great prostitute and the beast, um, and then the fall of Babylon in chapter 18. So I will tell you about 17. 17 um, is, is, is where a lot of our arguments about the dating of Revelation show up. Um, a lot of our having to really tussle through how is this connected to real-time events, to the things that are going on around um, the, the people that are receiving the letter, and how do we understand that through history? Um, and so 17 will be a little bit of a slog trying to get through all that stuff. Um, and then I'll be honest, 18 um, will land pretty hard on us as a society. Um, it very much talks about kind of as we watch Babylon fall. Um, it talks about the interactions of um, of the world that was associated with her, and, and frankly, it's, it falls hardest on um, a wealthy Western culture. Um, so, so eighteen will be a bit of a, a interesting to see. I don't. Know, we probably need to see ourselves in here more than we're comfortable with, um, but then we'll uh, we'll get through that, and that'll be the final fall of Babylon. Um, I said this, I think, a few class periods ago, but I'll, I'll go through this again because we're going to see this as we go through the next few chapters. I said there was a, a chiasm going on with when we're introduced to certain characters, kind of these, uh, after we hit, uh, we went through chapter 11, chapter 12 started our introduction to Satan, and we see a chiasm and how quick, and how these folks are introduced, and then how they're kind of dispatched. And so, in order, we see Satan, or the dragon, is introduced in chapter 12, um, and then we have two beasts, a beast of the land, and beast of the sea, and then we have Babylon, and then what we're going to see as we, uh, as we start to enter into 1718 is they're going to go out in the exact same order, or in the reverse order, excuse me, that they came in. Babylon's going to be dealt with. The two beasts are going to be dealt with. And then uh, Satan's going to be dealt with. Chapter 20. And uh, we said this is a chiasm. Okay? And a lot of time in Jewish thought, this is probably more implied to be a circle, but how we generally would render it is an arrow. And the tip of the arrow tends to be the... Um, the prime point, not that these are not important, um, but it is the strongest the thing that they're, they're trying to get at. Um, this probably makes sense for the folks that we're talking about because these, this is the more tangible thing that they're dealing with. This is actually probably still true for us today as we look at this as a broad impact of if these two things are trying are ultimately influencing Babylon, which is we can broadly think of as uh, kingdoms that are... Um, either trying to act as God in some manner or other, pulling, uh, persecuting God's people, pulling us, um, us away from the ways of God. Um, this is a relevant people-level thing if these things are ultimately kind of supporting this or using it. And this, that's frankly where we're going to get the image of Babylon as a whore, um, is that these two other entities, Satan and the two beasts, which make up kind of an unholy trinity-looking thing, okay, that's our concept of parody. We've seen a lot of that. People, people or things or circumstances that are kind of mimicking Jesus or God, um, but they're otherwise supporting this, um, but this is kind of how it's exercised. This will be used um, and then dumped for something else. 
Okay, so that's kind of the um, that's the elements that we're looking to as we kind of point forward, uh, moving from uh, chapter sixteen on. Um, so we said that we take a run and gun at sixteen. We started off um, on chapter chapter sixteen, and we're getting back into the bowls. We went through the seals and the trumpets, and now we're going to with the bowls. Um, said uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, "Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God." Now, one of the things we talked about last week was we saw a lot of similarities to these in the Egyptian plagues, which was the same thing we saw in the trumpets. Okay? Pointing back to the same broad characteristics of watching God um, pour, uh, I don't know, judgment upon groups of people that is coupled with his calls to repentance. Okay? And uh, we saw the first angel pours out the bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores. Okay? That, had, that had an exodus plague uh, relevance to that. And it came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And broadly we said if they bear the mark of the beast, it shows who they belong to. It's not a physical characteristic. It's just an indication of who they follow, who they belong to. The second angel pours out his bowl into the sea. It becomes like blood. Again, relevance to an exodus plague. Um, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Third angel pours out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they become blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And uh, we did spend a little bit of time last week kind of talking through our understanding of God's justice. Um, our ability to have a, our perspective and how that aligns with the justice of God. Um, I said that I personally struggle with that, um, but I think I struggle with the extent or maybe some of at least the written violence that comes behind these images of God's justice because it's not mine. It's God's to be just with. Um, the perspective that Jesus came to earth with um, and that we are otherwise to follow Jesus in is we're basically loving people into the kingdom. It's God's justice to dispense. Um, notice again that none of the Christians are never part of dispensing justice. Um, we're, we are never committing any of the, um, the violence that actually goes on in Revelation. All that is God's to deal with and it comes from his hand. Okay? So um, either that is a way to make myself feel better about my inability to understand kind of the depths of God's justice, but that's, that's where I'm at with that. Uh, and something that I would say I, I struggle with or have accepted rightly. One of the other. Uh, and, the, and we said we heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your adjustments. Who's under the altar? The yeah. Yeah, the saints, the martyrs. Okay? The, and it is that conversation where, where they're asking God, when you avenge our blood, that seems to carry through a lot of these judgments, that he keeps calling back to every time there's something fierce going on. Um, it tends to be tied to him saying, I'm avenging the blood of the saints. Okay? For those who mistreated my people, for those um, who kind of reversed what it is that I was trying to accomplish in the world, and there will be justice and retribution that comes with it. Um, and then we said that these judgments are calls, um, are calls to repentance. And then we watched as the fourth angel poured his bowl out in the sun and was allowed to scorch people uh, with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So that reinforces that these are calls to repentance. They know who God is. They know who these plagues should be attributed to and they refuse to repent. Okay? Helps me understand is justice in a little different scenario. These are unknowing folks, right? They know who they're cursing. They know who they're blaming. They're still refusing to repent. Fifth angel, kind of uh, same circumstance. Um, this is the bowl is, is poured out on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And again, they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And this is about where we stopped last week. So we'll go, start going into a little bit more depth here. It says, And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. 
Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Anybody have a red letter Bible? Is that red in yours? Yeah. Words, that, that's Jesus has kind of entered, um, put himself into uh, this particular section, which is interesting. There's, there's some commentators that think this is oddly placed and that this may not have happened in this order in his vision and that John has kind of moved it or it was unintentionally copied this way. I think there's strong reasons why Jesus is actually sitting right here in this moment. So we'll talk about those when we get there. Um, so he reminds he's coming like a thief and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, so let's work our way up to that from the sixth angel. So he pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. We've talked a little bit about the river Euphrates. Anybody remember where this has come up before? Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's in the trumpets, and it's the same one. It's the sixth trumpet. It says, the, if we go back to Revelation 9, 13, it says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So um, we said Euphrates has uh, a couple of potential references here. Great could be referring to its size. It's like 2,000 miles long, and there's no record ever of it drying up. Okay? It is something that is a river that is so large, it's not like it's prone to being dried up, where this is a logical reference to say, oh... It was that sun-scorching thing must have kind of caused our drying up and stuff. No, that doesn't seem to be a logical reference here. Um, but we did say, if you remember when we talked about the Euphrates River the last time, is that it was a key border. It kept out certain groups of people. It was a natural war border. Um, a couple things that might make sense would be, it does seem that a lot of the times that um, the Israelites were attacked, it was from kings from the east. Okay, kings were coming from the east. They would have to cross the Euphrates River. In fact, it's said that Cyrus, um, who was leading the, um, uh, the Babylonians to come take the uh, Israelites into captivity, is, is the one that like, he diverted the Euphrates to be able to get there and come over and capture them. Um, I'm not sure that makes sense as a threat here, um, but that's something that could be in play. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's a war boundary. Um, I also said that it is a natural war boundary between Rome and the Parthian Empire. Parthian Empire, they kind of, it sniffed a little bit like them when we were talking about those locusts that were stinging with their tails. We said the, uh, these were the natural or the constant enemy of Rome. It was the one empire that they never defeated. They never got the upper hand on. As a matter of fact, there's a story of the Parthian Empire. Um, they catch, captured some of the Roman standards. Um, and uh, one of the emperors went to go get them. And he, he came back in this big triumph to say, I recaptured the standards. What he really did was he paid for them. He basically gave them some money to give the standards back and then acted like he had actually conquered them to show back up. They weren't able to actually um, make progress in destroying the Parthians. And so the Euphrates River drying up could have this image of, um, if that's your natural boundary to keep them out, they can easily cross upon a dried river, uh, and that could re- represent some trouble for you. Um, there also is kind of an, uh, it's a weird thought, as we think of water drying up, there are other like biblical thoughts around um, water drying up or at least being parsed out. Um, it's got kind of an anti-thought to the um, splitting of the Red Sea or the Sea of the Reeds, okay? where the water's kind of split and they're able to walk across dry land. Um, there's also some references to the drying up as kind of a, of a judgment or a power that God has. Let's look at Isaiah 50 um, and see if we can find the right, uh, the relevant scripture here. Let's look. 
So the, right, the reference here is in Isaiah 50, verse 2. Um, but I'm going to read all of Isaiah 50, because actually the more I was reading this, the more I really like it. So uh, let's just read all of Isaiah 15. We'll see if we can see some of these images showing up here. Um, it says, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? He's chastising Israel um, for their behavior. Um, is <clears throat> he's, They're despondent. And he's saying, if, uh, if, I didn't, if I didn't give you a certificate of divorce, um, which have I sold you to my creditors, then what's with this lamentation that's coming from you? Okay, perk it up. God is still God. Um, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened? that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now this is um, Isaiah speaking. Um, That I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. That's got some, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a little Jesus. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. That's good. That back part's kind of their reaction to, if this is what God can do, and you're still going to kindle your own torch, you're going to light your own path, just know that you will eventually lie down in torment. I don't know. That's, a, that's excellent. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's emboldening, uh, especially as we talk about all the things that God's people are subject to in the book of Revelation. Um, is that what the world would consider shame? Uh, even Isaiah here is reminding us that I've not, I've not been shamed. Okay, the things that people would say, this you have been. Someone has pulled out your beard, like Jesus' beard was pulled out. If I give back to those who strike me, and he says, no, the God God's with me, I have not been disgraced. Um, it's it's buying into a world that says we see the world like God sees the world, and um, we just need to shift how we define things. And so I I don't know. It was it was interesting in the context of God's rebuke, where he says, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water. If my hand was against you, you would know it. These are the things that I'm capable of. So, well, and then coming from an angel as well, too. Yeah. I mean, he he's doling out he's doling out his dominion to the angels to to make that worthy. So there's still a lot more to come here. Yeah. If the angels are having the you know pouring out bowls and drying up the great Euphrates and the seas and all of that, there's still a lot more. Still a lot more that's possible here. Yeah, and, and we've um, we've seen that through all the kind of the recapitulations of like it's the angels that are doing some things, and then we're coming up right to the end, and then we seem to like reverse and we're looking at it from a different angle. And you know, you know that the, the, the foot has really hit the ground when we see kind of the emergence of King Jesus on the scene, and that's coming right up. 
Like we're just a few chapters away where all this kind of things that have been done on God's behalf comes to an end and, and all you see, you kind of see Jesus enter the scene here with a, with a white cape dipped in blood and a white horse. Um, and I think for all that Revelation is kind of pointed to where you thought, this has got to be the end. Listen to this stuff. This has got to be the end. Stuff doesn't end until Jesus shows up for things. And then you kind of feel the thing closed down. Uh, but, you're, but you're right. You're right. Like this is the powerful things on God's behalf. Uh, so anyway, it's waters dried up to prayer the way for kings from the east. Um, and it continues, says, I saw coming out of them. So this is interesting. I don't think we need to, we got to be careful we don't miss this. It's interesting that he would repeat over and over and over again the mouth part. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. All right, so based upon kind of where we've come from so far, what are some things we might be able to pull away from that sentence um, that would help us understand what's going on there? Good. Well, the, the impersonating trinity here. Yep. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Yep. You know, it, it's likened to the Holy Trinity, but it's not quite. Right. And then coming out of the mouths of, can we take that as literal? Out of the mouths? Like, are they things that they're saying? are coming then at, out as unclean spirits. Yeah, so so I think that's what I think that's the right they're direction. Speaking mm-hmm. speaking falsehoods. Very good. And those are coming out as spirits. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's what's pointing to. I think there's there's no reason to what, what do we care whether the where these frogs are coming from except for we've seen mouth repeated 3 times. Okay, so yeah, I think that I think that's an important distinction, and I think that's very much what it's getting at. Um, and if we think about frogs, where have we seen uh, not necessarily in Revelation, but where biblically have we seen frogs before? Egypt. Yeah, Egypt. Egypt, right? So we still have kind of a kind of a reference here that goes back to the Egyptian plagues. Okay, that was a form of judgment, but now you kind of see that these are unclean spirits. Okay, if this was if the um, frog plague in Egypt was meant to demonstrate who God is, okay, now you have these kind of, again, parody-type frogs that are coming from the mouths of these spirits, and they're attempting to demonstrate who they are, okay? And I would say that I would agree that if we we look mouth, 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 and we got it coming from um, all three parts of the Trinity, there seems to be a nature of deceit here. Uh, Let's see what they're going for. For they are demonic spirits... Would they be antichrist-like? So, so I think, and we'll, we'll run into this def, that uh, an antichrist definition when we look at First uh, John, um, because he he seems to describe that the way that we think of antichrist, we obviously think of like a capital A antichrist person, um, but John doesn't seem to treat them that way. I don't think in Revelation, and not, certainly not in First John, um, those are lowercase antichrists, and there were some around at the time. And so, I actually think that's very much what this um, Trinity is supposed to be. It's supposed to give, give this like the opposite of who Jesus is. That's what the parody is about. Um, and John will give us a definition of antichrist, and we'll pull that up here in just a second, Dan. That's a good is, thought. Is the frog though in reference to the Egyptian god of Hecate, the fertility and childbirth and la- you know like long life and does that have any bearing? I think I think it is I think is most definitely tied to the Egyptian plague. Whether it is trying to say the same thing that the Egyptian plague was against the Egyptian god, I'd be less committed about. I, I'm not sure. 
Um, but I think, I think if the tie is, is that these things are actually coming from the, from the false trinity as opposed to coming from God. It's trying to accomplish what God what did accomplish through his frogs. These fellows are trying to accomplish through their frogs, um, which, is, which is a nature of deceit, performing signs, which we see right next, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, and see what they're trying to do, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. They're trying to convince them of something. Okay? So I think that's where the mouth makes sense. The frogs start to make sense. I think we got this sense that they're, they're deceiving people and it seems to be coming from the mouth, things that they're saying. What's interesting, though, is we think of um, the way the Bible treats false prophets. Let's look at 1 John, um, let's look at 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3. And don't go too far. He's just right before, pretty close to Revelation. 1 John 4, 1 to 3. It says, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So again, if we're looking for capital A Antichrist as something that's going to happen on some sort of timeline of end times, John seems to be mistaken. Because he seems to think that that is there. And he's, and he's defined it very broadly as basically spirits who, who would not confirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Which sounds a lot, frankly, like our false prophet here and our, the, our demonic frogs coming out of our Trinity's mouth. Okay? People who are attempting to deceive others about who Jesus is. And that has to be the premise of, I'm going to convince you to gather for a war against God. Like, there's obviously a source of error in here. Go ahead. This, uh, this Bible, this 1599 Bible, says that uh, in reference to the frogs, that they're croaking with all opportunity uh, continually day and night, uh, provoking and calling forth the arms. So it's just the croaking day and night, I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that was, um, that, that is kind of the nuisance of frogs, is it not? <laughs> it's a yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we kind of combine those thoughts together. What's interesting to then think about is the thing that John was warning them back in his letters, um, not the non-revelation letters, but like his epistles to people. Um, false prophets and antichrist both show up in there, but these were deceits that the church was subject to. So one of the things we've got to be careful here is that we look at the false prophet and we act like these, these is, is disassociated from the people of God, but these seem to be real risks that the church is subject to. As a matter of fact, these are the, the very risks that we saw in the direct letters to the, the notions to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, right? That you can be deceived, that you're not on your guard. And so what's interesting then is it seems like this is not just a risk of like these political and religious forces of evil that are gathering all those who are not gods, this seems a risk to the church that we can be subject to that croaking, that we can be subject to the same lies, the same deceit that is otherwise convincing people to gather against God. Okay? And that can come from political realm, it can come from religious realm, um, and frankly it can come from, bad, from false teaching within the church. Okay? So it's something that we do have to be careful with. Um, there, there is a... This is what we're going to we're going to move into the realm of you have to look around and assume everything around you is creepy, okay? But like, if I'm going to take Revelation seriously, and that is something that I believe is happening at through all time, um, which again I think we can validate that this is happening for the first century church. This is not something that we're free from. Is that it means that there is an active movement by uh, by a false trinity to influence political and religious forces to otherwise take you off God. Okay? To point you in a different direction to get you caught up in something else. Okay? So the, the point is not to say that you have to fear, because that's what Revelation, the whole concept of Revelation are these promises of God, 
okay, of your persistency. Okay? But it is probably the right thing to consider um, is that we can't live life blindly under the, end, under the thought that these things are not occurring. Right? Or that certainly this, this, um, this infrastructure, this government or this religious force um, doesn't have in mind to deceive me away from God. Okay? Now, last week you said there was a... I think I heard this last week. There was so much stuff, I don't know. Okay. There was a... Somebody used a musical term that things are getting louder. Yes. Is that not right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was true. And so, like, I just thinking out loud with these frogs. Okay, so in the Old Testament, yeah. We can do frogs, they can do frogs. I can deceive you into thinking I'm just as powerful as you. So what's God got to do? He's got to step it up. Uh-huh. Do something more drastic. I'm, I'm assuming that's the way we're... No, yeah, and, and that, that actually fits quite well within our kind of our parody concept, right? Like, I'm going to attempt to demonstrate that I am who God is. I'm doing the same things that he is doing. Yeah, and yeah. So this is like the realm of both, being deceived by those inside and those outside. That's correct. And so in the belly of the horror, I mean... Yeah. That's supposed to be the church anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think we... Um, what, what this has to be is an eye-opener that says, I can't let Revelation kind of float above me as if this is not relevant to my world, right? Because that is where, that is how we end up in deceit, is we kind of write it off and say, I don't think deceit is going on. Um, which, means, which means we have to be careful. Okay? Which means we have to be careful about the types of things that we believe. That's why we run things through Scripture. It's why Scripture works that way, to be able to kind of validate some things. Um, and although my nature is, and this is where, where my hesitancy comes with seeing some of the judgment that comes from God, I'm like, yeah, but people are, people are just good people, God. Don't you, don't you know? Don't you know that's an uncle of somebody? Don't you know that that's a, you know, he's a family man? He's, he's not doing it. He just doesn't quite believe what I believe. It's a false. Okay? It's a false understanding. Whether that person is intentionally propagating deceit, is irrelevant as to whether there are other forces that are attempting to use them for deceit. Does that make sense? Okay, so we can still love, and his, God still does what he wants. There are, um, there are prominent religions in the world of which are way more, um, way more open to having their lives changed by Jesus Christ than your pseudo-Christian Western nations. Okay? There's, a, there's a massive amount of, of Muslim, Muslims that are coming to Christ because they're simply open to it. They're actually searching for God. Um, they're open to dreams actually changing something about who they are and redirecting their lives. And we will, we will dismiss all those things. Okay? So I guess what I'm saying is, is that like, I'm, don't hear me saying that this takes the power of Jesus and of Christians witnessing church to actually call people to repentance and have it work. Because that was the message of the trumpets, was it not? Yeah. Only it was when the church is witnessing that people actually repent. Okay? However, you also have to be careful. Okay, that deceit exists in the world. Not, not everyone who claims to be a Christian or speak for Jesus or be doing the work of Christ is actually doing so. Okay? You have to evaluate those things not out of fear, but out of confidence that God will handle all this stuff, but he's given you the ability to discern them. Okay? Does that, does that all make sense? Okay. Okay. Battle on the great day of the God Almighty. Okay, that's a, that's a thing. That's not a great day of the God Almighty. That's the... Okay, that's, that's kind of an end of the world, big deal type of thing. God kind of handles everything. Lots of Old Testament references to um, this is when everything actually gets sorted out. Okay, things will be what they'll be. Well, if I tell you to persevere, you're persevering up to this time. Um, and then God will actually handle all those things. Um, and then we, this is our interlude. So we said we, all of them have had interludes. The, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the seals had an interlude and it said you will be uh, spiritually secure. 
Okay, that was our um, interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. It's a confirmation for the church. You'll be spiritually secure, but I'm not promising your physical comfort, okay, or your physical preservation. Um, the six between the sixth and seventh trumpet, the message to the church was: when you witness, people repent. Okay, a witnessing church produces <laughs> repentant people. Okay, every other time where that's not happening, nobody repents. Okay, this is our interlude between the excuse me the sixth and seventh bowls, and it's Jesus interjecting. Okay? There's these false prophets, the, the dragon, the beast, is gathering all these people to basically wage war against God Almighty. And then we have Jesus interject, and he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Have we heard that before in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, this isn't a new phrase from Jesus. He said it before. Okay? Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. All right, let's, let's parse some of the stuff that Jesus has said, because frankly, we've heard all of them before in Revelation. In Revelation. So first, I, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Now this is interesting. Again, um, we're going to read this only because we haven't touched it on, on a while. But like, if I want to make this a timeline, Jesus has reiterated the thing. Like, we're one bowl away from the whole show being done. We've, we're done talking about judgments, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven. We're one bowl away, and he says, you have no idea when I'm coming. You have no idea when I'm coming. Not a roadmap. Okay, good. Nice reinforcement for Jesus, uh, even as we've come this far. Um, don't expect to be seeing these things physically. I, you still don't know when I'm coming. Okay, but his message in it, even in spite of this, okay, is blessed is the one who stays awake. There's a, beati- there's a third beatitude. We said we got seven. Okay, there's a third one. Blessed is. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Have we heard an admonition to stay awake before? Yes, of course. We have. Yes, it's in one of the letters. Remember, remember the city? The guys who kept, like, our walls will protect us, and they kept just not putting guys that oh, fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. Wake up. Wake up. Stay awake. Stay awake, yeah. Yeah, that same admonition shows back up here. Okay? Now, how does that make sense? What is the stay awake, or um, <clears throat> blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on? What is, uh, well, we, have we done garments? We talked about garments in Revelation? Yeah. We got naked folk, and we got, uh, who, who was naked? One of our churches was naked. Come on, you got to remember the nude church. <laughs> Laodicea. Remember, Laodicea was the folks where they made their own, the fine garments. And he says, you're naked, wretched, poor, pitiful. Okay? It was his judgment upon you. They, they were providing for themselves. Okay? So yeah, we've seen Jesus' condemnation of naked churches before. Okay? So we have a stay awake, keep Keep his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So let's, in the, con, uh, in the context of where that sixth angel, the deceit and stuff, how should we understand those who stay awake and those who keep their garments on? That was God's judgment against the churches. That's what he held against them. Mm-hmm. And so to rectify getting back in, getting back on the right path, you were awake and you had your garments on. So it's a way of being reconciled to the right path. Okay, good. That's first fruits, first love connotations to it. Agreed. Are you paying attention? Yeah. Do you have Jesus on? Are you doing the work of Jesus? Right. Are you clothed in his righteousness? Are you being found? Yeah. Yeah, or are you, or are you in the wild dude? Now here's, now here's the thing. He brings this up specifically in the context of temptation, right? Yes. Of, of buying into false things. 
of strong proponents trying to deceive you and eventually put you on the other side of the battle with God Almighty. Okay? Stay awake. Keep your garments on. I gave you a white robe, right? Like we get we constantly, Jesus is clothing people in white. Okay, if you're the naked guy, uh, I, there's probably a little bit of, of, I've taken your lampstand associated with that. But like, it means that basically you're not covered. You, you've picked the wrong horse here. And this is an admonition. As everything kind of comes up, is to make sure you understand what you're picking here. Which side you're ultimately on, because you will find yourself exposed, okay, when, when met with God Almighty. And you'll find yourself asleep, which, boy, like, it, it, it brings me back. Every time I think about people being spiritually asleep, it always takes me back to, um, to the garden, right? Where they're supposed to stay awake with stay Jesus, awake. and those guys are sleeping, and they're sleeping. And so it just, um, I think that's where those contrasts are coming here. We're seeing the descriptions of the churches kind of show back up later in Revelation to reflect the spiritual state of people. Now, is this, is this a point in time? If nothing has been a point in time, is this a point in time? Well, the great day of God Almighty, yeah, that's got to be, like, there's got to be historical something that happens. There, there has to be a moment captured probably by the last point where we ever even care about a subject of time of which something ends, okay? However, this concept of being naked or being exposed and, and the false prophets and the false beast and the dragon kind of gathering to deceive people, that is true throughout time. Nothing has changed about that concept, Okay. Okay? Now, and I think that where we get that wrong and when we start to look for a specific point in time is when we come to things like that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We want to, we're expecting a spot. Okay? We want people being round up. We want big armies of folks moving and we want them to end up in a single place called Armageddon. Here's our problems. Armageddon is a uh, transliteration, which means like we've basically taken a word that if you were to pronounce it in one language and then made it a word in another, the word Messiah is that too. Okay, that wasn't a legit word; it's just a Hebrew saying of that word, and then we just say Messiah. Okay, Armageddon is the transliteration of a uh, Hebrew phrase, um, which is Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. In Hebrew, that means Mount Megiddo. So, if we're going to look for a place for everyone to assemble for this mighty battle. Uh, on the great day of God Almighty, we should be looking to happen at Mount Megiddo. Problem. Megiddo is a real spot. Okay? Lots of Old Testament battles happen there. It's a, it's a blood-soaked field. Okay? But it is a field. It's a plain. There's not a mountain anywhere near it. Okay? There is no Mount Megiddo. There's not like a slight mistake where John was like close and there was like a mountain close to that that it could be. Okay? There is no Mount Megiddo. So, if we're expecting a point-in-time battle of which things are kind of confluxing and evil and God are kind of going one-on-one in one particular place and we could see armies coming from all areas, I, they don't know where they're going because there's not a Mount Megiddo. Now, the Megiddo reference makes sense. If this was a place where a lot of bloody battles happened, okay, um, a lot of fighting between God's people and other people, I get the reference. But the mountain doesn't really make a lot of sense. Okay? It can't be a physical place. And frankly, for it to be a physical place and a physical point in time, we'd have to disregard everything that we've read up to Revelation so far and say, okay, they're going to be fighting in Armageddon. Okay? So, no, I don't expect to see this as a particular place where people gather. Okay? But the implications um, from this are interesting because if it is a... Um, if, if, well, actually, let's look at something. Let's look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, I'm going to give you a heads up that this is dense... 
Um, but because this shows back up later in Revelation, it's probably worth us going through now. And we'll see if this helps give us a little bit of um, direction on our understanding of our mountain. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is right after our uh, mountain of the dry bones, or prophecy of the dry bones. Well, it was interesting that they, you can have big battles with light, where if you get the line up, you know, but you can't do that on the mountain. Uh, that's true. You don't get the old uh, uh, British style fighting with folks like one guy and another guy in Whamola. You don't take a mountain. Yeah, that's good. That's a good thought. It's a good thought. All right, let's look at uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, prophecy against Gog. Uh, so Gog and, and um, Gog is of Magog. Okay, it seems to be a place. Um, Revelation will also, like this becomes a stock thing and we say Gog and Magog as if they're two folks, but Gog is like a person. Um, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, this is to Ezekiel, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his hordes, Bethorgama, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be guard for them. After many days you will be mustered. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel. And I think that's probably our operative phrase. Were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought up from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to see spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who will dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hosts to carry off splendor, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize great spoil? Take a breath. We're not close to done. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are long. Keep going. Therefore, Son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Will you? Yeah. You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So far, this sounds a lot like this battle that we're talking about. Um, it shows a vindication of God armies and nations kind of coming together to otherwise uh, come up against the God's people. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? But on that day, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Remember that. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. 
I will summon a sword against Gog and all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, all right, let's skip 39 for now, um, but we'll have to touch it again when we get to um, later on in Revelation. Okay, so what do I think is happening here? I, th- I think he's kind of calling back this Ezekiel 38 and 39 picture, okay, of kind of God's full domination of all those that come against him. He's, he's given us Armageddon not because he's calling us to a specific place. Okay? But he's kind of conflicting two different images together. We have Megiddo, a place where all the where battles against God people have traditionally happened. But we're called to think of it as a mountain where something that people are not able to traverse. He describes Israel as kind of being upon the mountains and able to dispatch with Gog and everything that they bring. Okay? If I have to make a guess of what I think Armageddon is, is doing, that's, that's the picture I think he's trying to paint with Armageddon. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, is this around the time basically like... When, when Jesus come back and uh, take over four thousand years, or am I too far ahead? Or you're a little far ahead. <laughs> okay. You're a little far ahead. Now the truth is, again, I think I think all this stuff kind of can play on <clears throat> on the plane of being across time. In fact, that thousand years is going to come up for me at least as being debatable. So we'll talk about that when we get there. That's coming up here pretty soon. Okay. Um, but I think this is um, this is still kind of a picture um, of something that happens throughout time like there will be a great day of god the almighty like i'm not i'm not saying that 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 has to be a point in time um but like if you notice we're still on bowl six like if this was everything and even bowl seven like after the seventh bowl people are still cursing god and refusing to repent okay so if it's the destruction of everything i don't know why there's still things kind of happening after that's why time is a bit of a relative issue and frankly not not sequential as we read it it's still of of a description of a truth about god over time uh, as opposed to a specific event in time um, that will happen. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, eh, we're iffy on that. Okay. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's keep going. We'll see if this continues to shake out. Well, Ezekiel does have a lot of language in here of, you know, the last battle to end all battles. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's screaming revelation. Yes. It, the wording... You've got the fours in there, uh-huh. you know, as far as for completion. Mm-hmm. Um, God, but this, everything though here in Ezekiel is just painting a picture towards God is orchestrating all of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring you in. This is what you're going to do because mm-hmm. I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to allow you to do it. This is how it's going to work out. Yep. This is what's going to happen in the midst of it. And this is how it's going to end up in 39. Yep. That kind of thing. So it's just, I don't know. I I think that they would know this. Yes. Yeah, definitely. They would definitely have. um, The the, the, the readers of Revelation are going to know this Ezekiel. Yes. I, I would agree. As a matter of fact, just to give you kind of a heads up, if we look at Revelation 20, starting in verse 7, um, it talks about Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Okay, that sounds like our Ezekiel 38-39. Yeah. Okay, which is interesting because 38 and 39 are recapitulating each other. 
um, telling the same story again from a different perspective. Um, and we'll deal with the defeat of Satan next week. Uh, that is tricky. It has to do, confluxes a little bit with the thousand year stuff. We'll have to spend some time on it. Um, but uh, again, if this was if this was to be the end of everything, it shows back up in Revelation 20 as a valid reference. And so, again, a persistent idea through time that these things will happen, not necessarily a specific point in time that it's happening. Because the truth is, as much as like I, this would make my life a lot easier if I could just say this was a point in time. But then, frankly, I don't know what to do with it as they show up over and over and over again, right? If this if we were done in Revelation um, 16. With that, with the Ezekiel battle, what am I supposed to do with it when it shows back? That same battle shows back up in Revelation 20, right? So that then puts everything kind of over in a broad plane of which we are being communicated truths over time, as opposed to having to say this is a specific thing happening at a specific point in time. But I, but I struggle with that because, like, he's telling a story, and I want things to happen like this. Okay. So is there a correlation then between Babylon and Magog then here that the readers are? That the readers are coming to. So the truth is, is um, allowing Gog and Magog to come in, and is that is that correlating to what then what's now happening? So I, I think so. It's interesting because like we've had a, historically we've had a very hard time pointing down who Gog is. Like there's not a real um, tangible understanding of. Like he's a bit of a mysterious character, Gog of Magog. Um, we haven't been able to identify him as a precise person in time. Um, however, he seems to represent ultimately what Babylon will represent in Revelation, which is a, a great king who's posturing against God, and God says, okay, okay, go ahead, bring, yeah, if that's what you want, <laughs> then that's what we're going to do. Um, so yeah, I would say that there's, a, there's definitely a connection there from our understanding of the fall of Babylon um, connected back to Gog, Gog of Magog. Yeah, I would say that. Let's, 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 so they all gather. They're going to gather for this big deal. Okay, big thing. Things are coming up. Everyone's ready to fight. Um, they're, they're assembled at Armageddon. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. What didn't happen? Yeah, no battle. They were gathering for a battle. This is the most anticlimactic battle that we could possibly anticipate. Big, I mean, all the world coming against God against his people, gathering from all over the place. Nothing. They're gathering for their own execution. That's what they came to. Okay? They gather, they gather at Mount Megiddo for their own execution. Why isn't there a battle? Jesus hasn't come yet. I heard his voice like. So I, uh, I'll steal the first part of your answer. It is Jesus. Jesus is the relevant answer here. There's no battle because they've already been defeated. They've already been defeated. There's no fight. Right? There's this concept that, that there's going to be good and evil going into some kind of final sword fist, physical thing, or even a spiritual battle that requires an effort on God's behalf to dispatch with. Okay? Doesn't seem relevant in the light of who Jesus was and what he has accomplished. There is not a battle because they have already been defeated. Okay? It's just done. He pours out his bowl into the air and the loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done, it's, it is accomplished. Okay, it's not quite the phrase. It's, um, it would have been an interesting connection um, when Jesus dies on the cross and he says it is finished. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not quite the same phrase. It's close, but it's not quite the same phrase. Okay, but yeah, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. As I told you to remember that from Ezekiel, right? Great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Now, looking at where we've come from. We went from a fourth of the earth impacted in our seals, a third in our trumpets, and now 
we're done. Okay, everything is taken care of as we get out of the bowls. Now, our story's not finished. We're in chapter 16. Okay, there's more to talk about. But I think this is our signal that our recapitulations of, those, of our understanding between God and those people is done. Okay? Of those that are against God, those that are for God. We will spend the rest of our time dealing with Satan, two beasts, and Babylon, and ultimately what new heavens and new earth look like. Okay? But humanity and its relationship to God and his judgments, our recapitulations are done. Okay? This is going to be the end of those. So the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great. This is not like, oh, I remember my grandmother. This is not a positive, remembered Babylon the Great. Okay? Um, in, the, uh, in the midst of the, all these things happening, it says, God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Where have we seen wine associated with the fury of his wrath? You may remember? This is what I would consider one of the grossest images to deal with in Revelation. Yeah, yeah, that's the wine press and the stampling. God is stamping out, okay, his wrath upon those. And now, do you remember who was who that wrath was taken out on? No, no, no. Like who? Jesus was doing the stamping. God's doing the stamping. Who is the? It's it's specifically those who 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 caused the martyrdom. Okay, those that were against God's people and caused their death. Okay, that's who his wrath was upon, and it said it, the blood flowed as high as a horse's bridle. Okay, for my, almost two hundred miles. Okay, so that's the last time we saw this, and so we have Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of her of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Similar description that was in Ezekiel, and great hailstones, Ezekiel, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, there's still people here. So it has to be over time. It has to be truths over time. If this was the end of everything, I don't know why people are cursing. I feel like the hailstones fell on them and they're dead. Okay? Okay? God's interaction will cause people to curse him or repent. They're continuing to curse him. All right. Seems like we're done, but it continues. Chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. All right, let's stop there and see if we can parse through what we got through so far. So um, the angel comes down and says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Don't miss that. That's what this chapter is about. The judgment of the great prostitute. There's going to be a lot going on in here. We're going to kind of yank it out and say something else is definitely going on here. Okay, don't 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 lose the forest for the trees here. Judgment of the great prostitute is the point of the chapter. All right, um, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. What are some things that we might be able to infer from that right there? They all worship the prostitute, basically. I think it's fair to say the prostitute is having an influence on the kings of the earth. 
I would agree. Have we had greatly deceived to the point of delirium, to the point of abandoned, to the point of drunken recklessness? Right. Okay. I would agree. I put that in the same conclusion as like what's going on today, like sex sales, like you know. I don't know. Like that's how I think. Like you know, like they use females for the wrong reasons. Like if you turn on the TV today, like you see all these models and. You know, like, people really worship them, like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, in this sense, like, kind of. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I think that I think that is, that very thing is the reason why the image w- is what it is. So that's why we're talking about prostitute here, is like the allure of something um, that otherwise meets uh, desires, but has this has the connotation, first of all, kings of the earth has never had a positive connotation in Revelation, right? So we know this is a bad thing. Um, we know that she is having this type of influence on that. Okay, and she's she's going to be part of our set of folks. Now she's not part of this kind of unholy trinity, but they are using her. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to see that basically they get done with her, um, and then they just disregard her and move on to something else. Okay, um, so around the waters and then end up in the wilderness. Is that just to say that she's everywhere? So the wilderness is actually an interesting. I'm not sure. Um, there were some options on who was seated on many waters, and the only thing that that stuck out with me was. Um, uh, waters have that evil connotation, um, and in, it, it's widespread. Because to be in many waters, you have to be in many different locations. Like that's that's what I took from that. But the wilderness thing is interesting. Who else has been in the wilderness? Jesus and the Jews. And the Jews. Good. What about in Revelation? Another woman, another single woman out in out in the desert giving birth. We're going to see a lot of interesting comparisons between. This woman, this Babylon, and the woman in the wilderness from chapter 12, um, and also the church in chapter 20. Okay? So it's, it's going to be interesting, but yeah, yeah, there's a good connection with another woman in the desert. Um, no so, parody, but skewed. Correct, yeah. And, and we're, I think we're intended to draw comparisons between the two. We're intended to draw comparisons between the two. Um, all right. The dwellers on earth have become. Okay. With the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become. Drunk. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's not a good image. Okay, that's not just a hey, we've had a little bit of attraction to it. It's like we've bought hook, line, and sinker. We're in. Okay, we, we've had enough to become drunk, which is also her description uh, that she is drunk on the blood of the saints. Um, it says he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. What what, what do we know about this beast just based upon that description? It's broad. It's not overly specific. Who else has seven heads and ten horns? It's not a mutant sword. What's that? A sword. Yes, that's, yes, definitely what it is. Yeah. It's more of a scientific distinction that the Bible is trying to make in this area. <laughs> you said horns represent power, right? Right. So that's a lot of power, ten horns. Right. Right? Right. Have we seen this description before? Seven heads, ten horns. Yeah. Dragon. Dragon, seven head, ten horns, ten horns, yeah. Beast, seven they head, ten horns. Blasphemous names. Yeah. It was full of the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Was it? Um, what, what, have we, what have we interacted with names so far in Revelation? Is it like he's speaking blasphemous or like? It's, I think it's on him. Okay, like so it's like like tattoos. Yeah, think think of it that way. It's not like here's the deal. Is it a real? Is it likely a real beast? Real thing, creature will see crawling around. No, 
But right, in concept, yeah, na blasphemous names are all over it. That's the image that we're supposed to be getting from it. Okay. Who else had names on them? It's been, it's been too long, hasn't it? We stretched, of course, it's one, one week too many. Okay, um, remember Jesus talks about, I will, I will put my name on you. Okay, it's a sense of ownership. Sealing. Oh, sealing. Yeah, okay. sealed, right? Okay, whose, whose names were on their forehead? Right. Yeah, Mark of the Beast. Name, okay? Uh, the number of its name, a name that otherwise indicates who you belong to. Okay, now you have blasphemous names. Okay, he's mocking God with these names. Like, oh yeah, but they are, they are the opposite of actually belonging to God. It's something that otherwise blasphemes the name of God, this beast. Okay, that's, that's the image we're supposed to be getting with the beast. But we know from the seven heads and ten horns, everyone that's come out um, associated with Satan has had that same description. Okay, seven heads, ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Okay, I uh, think, um, I don't know how to put this, uh, a mini skirt and hooker boots. Okay, that's what this is. This is, this is a description of the harlot. That's what we have here. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. And it said this, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, how does that hit John? How does that hit John, who's, who's seeing this? When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He's the, only, he's the last surviving apostle. Okay? Everyone else has been martyred. Antipas is dead, right? That's our guy in, in, uh, in either two or three. This is looking like the end to him. Yeah. Mystery this is, is, is mystery lawlessness. We have mystery is lawlessness, is that? Um, She's lawless in the, I mean... So here's, 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 my, here's what I think, because there, there's, there's a lot about this. So here's what I think, is I wonder if, if you connect these things, and our forehead was written a name of, name of mystery, um, and that's, is that a capital M? Anybody got a capital M? I don't think, that's, I don't think it's not mystery. Okay, it's a name of mystery. And the question is, why is it mysterious? So it's Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth abominations, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, here's the thing. is like coming from John's perspective, I wonder if this answers a pretty deep question, which he's, he's seen a little bit so far in Revelation. But to be actually face-to-face with what seems to be the backbone, the cause of the martyrdom of your brothers, of the martyrdom of, of the people that you pastor, of your specific exile, attempted murder, and then exile into Patmos. And now you're faced with this woman that is, is not just like causing these things. She is drunk on the blood of the saints. I'm not sure I could do anything but open my mouth and marvel at what, at what, at what I have before me. And if the mystery is, is that like, this is it. Like you've come face to face with that great evil that has propagated the admonitions that you've been making to your churches as you, as you speak. The weeping and the sadness as you watch your brothers, who the martyrs for Jesus that have died around you. I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that's our tie. It's that's that mystery that is not just, like I get to see the broad picture of how all these are happening. For John, this brings everything local and live and sitting right in front of your face. But I wonder if there's just an element of just like, Not hard to believe, but just the audacity. Yeah. She's there holding the cup. That's not <clears throat> something that you that you hold and and revel in. Got all these abominations and and 
blood of the saints and I'm mm-hmm. reveling in it and I'm I'm living it up and and I'm I'm so for the other team that's yeah. like in your face. Right. And right. How can you just not just be like what in the the boldness of that evil. Yeah. And, and actually and I and that it's and that it is evil. Right. You know what I mean? Like yep. you can almost look at it and be like, well, that can't be true and then you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. That's for real. I, I actually I think you've nailed that. I think that's the very the very much the image that we're getting is you have this the beast is full of blasphemous names. Like even we've seen so far is like people are marked with a name. This beast is like fully arrayed in it. She's wearing obvious things that point us out to kind of her harlotry. Okay, um, and you're right. It, it's a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual morality. And uh, on her forehead, so that would be um, that would be a common way that you would advertise your craft if you're a prostitute in that day. Okay, you would you would put it on the put it on your forehead. That's your advertisement. And so she's advertising. Does that have something to do with the Jews too, like binding on their forehead, their hands and their foreheads and? Like who you belong to, and that's, you know. that's actually an interesting thought. Like it's a cultural, it's a cultural relevant thing, but actually that's that's interesting that the same place where God said this is how you will use to identify what you follow, it's the same place that prostitutes would otherwise advertise right. something that were to take you away from, especially temple prostitutes, which makes would make even more. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you've nailed. It. I and think there's no shame in it. Look at me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm so evil. Check on it. Check. Yeah. Yeah. I marvel greatly. I would too. And, but the angel said to, and actually this, this again forces me to confront something that I, that I struggle with, right? I still want to look at people and I'm like, hey, maybe they're all right. But like John is faced with a, like un, <laughs> an unending corruption and a joy in it, a drunk joy in those types of things. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Here we go. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must only remain a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So I feel like John had like... I don't know, roughly 35 words that he had in a little bowl and he kind of just shook them up and dumped them out and just made sentences out of the words that came out of there, right? So let's, um, let's see if we can deal with this. And I don't want to overspend the amount of time on this because I think um, uh, this is where people will start going astray with some stuff. So why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven hands and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottom of the pit and go to destructions. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So we still we, we have parity here, right? right? Like we have God and we have those three descriptions that said was, is, um, and is to come. And then now we have kind of this parody of the beast. It says it calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, now watch this. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. They're, 
they're two things because it's a symbol. That's how symbols work. In case we got lost in our ability to try to predict things again, okay? They're two different things. Um, seven kings, though. What generally happens is we say, well, anybody have a guess on who, who we think these, uh, why we're talking about seven hills? Yeah, yeah, so Rome was founded on seven hills. Okay, so we think, well, this, okay, this has got to be Rome then. Okay, um, I actually think mountains make sense to me. How have we, de- how have we dealt with mountains? Kingdoms. Yeah, kingdoms, exactly right. Okay, so let's, let's hold either one of those as potential. Maybe we're, maybe we're referring to Rome here specifically, something that the, uh, the folks who received in the letter would understand, and, and seven hills is a good indication. Could it be the Holy Roman Empire? Um, as a seven for like a completion thing? Is that... Um, it's, it's possible. It's, it's possible. So yeah, let's, let's, I think all those are kind of in tandem and I think kingdoms actually fits more in line with the understanding of what that is. Um, so let's, so let's hold that. We have a reference to Rome, Holy Roman empire is kind of the fourth beast of Daniel, um, or king, perhaps kingdoms in general. Okay. They are also, so if they're going to share a symbol, they're also seven Kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, so we'd assume current, the other has yet to come. So if we're going to take this as Rome, a lot of times we start talking about, well, this must be our seven uh, Roman rulers up to this point. Who's got their, um, I need to borrow someone's packet. Has anybody got a packet that they, uh, do you guys have more than one at your table? Why don't you guys hold on to that? Can I borrow yours? I need, um, I need my list of Roman, Roman rulers. There we go. It's on the back of um, 20. Set that right there. Back on your 20th page. So, if we have, uh, and this is why I told you, this sometimes get involved in the dating of the book itself. All right. So, let's count our rulers then. Okay, if we're going to be good Roman folk, we've got to count our rulers. Um, the fifth is, we said, Culver um, Mine, Seven Mountains, Seven Kings. Oh, five of whom have fallen. One is, one is, so that would be our current ruler. The other is not yet to come. All right. So, one, the Caesars, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, that means our current one that we care about is Galba. The sixth one. Well, that doesn't sound. Remember, he was. I said there was a year of three three emperors. Okay, he does nothing worth talking about. Okay, so what? So then we got to start jacking with it. We say, well, we don't start with Augustus Caesar, like Julius. Um, well, actually, so if we count Julius Caesar, um, Octavius, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, um, so. That's not going to, he's the gavel's not going to work. So we have to skip, so we can say, well, we'll skip them. Maybe we won't treat because they were three right in a row real quick. We'll skip them and that will get us to Vespasian, but that's, that's still not what we're looking for. Okay. We want this to be something else. Um, the, the reason I say this is because this drives whether we say, well, if it, this has to be talking about, um, a Roman emperor, but we can't tie anything good to Galba. Okay? He doesn't make any sense in the context of someone who is currently ruling. There is not an argument that he was the person of which Revelation is trying to speak to. We want it to speak to Nero, okay? or, um, some, or our post-destruction uh, of the temple, neither which is going to make sense. You'd have to get through Galba, Otho, Vitellius. Okay? The whole point is, is that like, this is a, the, a prominent thought that this must be referring to Roman rulers. Our counts are not going to work, so you've got to start getting funky. You've got to start tossing guys and say, let's not count Galba, Otho, Vitellius so that we can kind of move this on and get within a time of persecution that we can buy into. Well, the last one's got some wiggle room. The other one has yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Yeah. So is that one of the three? Well, so that would, that would then finalize What's your full list. Would right. you put your what? Otho? Yeah. That guy was killed uh, by Vitalis. <laughs> okay. 
right? The other theory is that, that, that like you start with Babylon, then Rome, or Greece, Rome, the different actual nations that are in common. So, they usually playing around with all. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. You can get a lot of stuff, to, a lot of things to work out here, depending on what you want to count. Um, but has that been kind of our trajectory of Revelation so far? That he's been ultra-specific about something that's happening? No. No. It hasn't been. Okay? So do I think he took this time to then call us to something extremely specific about Rome, the rulers of Rome, that type of thing? It seems unlikely to me, uh, especially in the different ways. that like, There's a lot of people put a lot of effort into some good explanations here that you really got to fudge with to get these things to match up. So let's see if we can take both of these images, though, and get us, get us close. Thanks, April. Yeah. And get us close to, to what this might be. Um, let's look at, um, we have ten horns that are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they had to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Um, so what if it's this? Let's, let's, start, let's start broad and see. Let's, let's say our mountains are kingdoms. Um, that's about how's he, how he's used mountains so far. This could be hills. By the ESV translated as mountains. I actually think that's closer. Um, there's a guys that I really like um, that want that to be hills. I don't, I don't know. I think it's mountains. So if we, if we go from mountains and we're looking at kingdoms, the seven heads are seven kingdoms on which the woman is seated. Okay, associated with um, seven is a number of completion, right? If mountain is a kingdom, she seems to have some relevance to all kingdoms or complete number of kingdoms. There are also seven kings, five of them who have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. So this seems to be a kingdom. Kings are heads of kingdoms, yes? Okay? So this seems to be a kingdom that is in process, will come to an end at some point. Okay? Okay, good. If I'm John and I'm looking at this Babylon who's associated with this current kingdom, um, some assurances that this will end at some point, Okay, I think that makes sense to me. This seems like it, you, you could tie this to Rome, but it also seems like kingdoms throughout time. Okay, but would this make sense to say this kingdom is, has been in place for a while, um, it is on its way out? As some assurance that, that these, these terrible things that I've seen coming out of this kingdom's association with uh, Babylon, with this prostitute, are on its way. Yes, that would make sense to me. And then, if you, then you have ten horns that are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. Okay, even, however... Even after that kingdom ends, there's more to come. Now, let's follow. So let's say that, that I think that sounds right. Okay? That sniffs right. Let's go to Daniel 7. This calls for a mind of wisdom mm-hmm. to understand that um, the, you know, the prostitute's everywhere. She's seated everywhere. She's drunk on, on the blood of the saints everywhere. And I think that's I think that's part of the point. So, and the reason I want to look at Daniel seven is because that particular rendering. There are kingdoms that are com- that that have been. Um, there are more kingdoms to come. There's one right now. Uh, yeah, the, I think I think the vision of the kings, the kingdoms that are going through in Daniel seven, give us pretty much that exact same picture. So, what I think actually that he's doing is calling us back to the same understanding that Daniel is in Daniel 7, is to say, this thing that you're afraid of will end. However, there is more to come. Let's, look at, uh, let's read through Daniel 7. Um, it starts off, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as they lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts 
came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked by the roots. Now, if you look at all those beasts together, how many horns and heads does it have? Seven heads, ten horns. Seven heads, ten horns, if you add all those beasts together. Now, watch, watch Daniel's reaction. And this is in, uh, we'll move to 715. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So we skipped the part of when the Ancient of Days reigns, where we get this idea that Jesus will conquer. Okay? Um, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and for the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus as he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth. As for the ten ho- excuse me, uh, and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. Sounds familiar, right? And shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, blasphemy, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for time times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. Now watch Daniel's reaction. As for me, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So what Daniel is walking away from this is to say, all right, I have some assurances. I understand how these kingdoms will work, but we still have to go through this. This is something that will, even though I know that the time, there will, time will come to an end, and Daniel is concerned about it, right? Because he still has to see these, these things. John is in a very similar circumstance. He has assurance, okay? There, th- this kingdom that is propagating these things against his people, I actually do think this is intended to, to specifically speak to Rome, and it says this Roman king will come in the end. If we look at not Roman kings, but like width, a breadth of how long the Roman kingdom lasts, it's almost done, okay? It will fall. But even after that, more kings, 10, number of completion, okay, will come. And they will continue to do these things of which um, the beast propagates. Because it as for the beast that was and is not, is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And they are of one mind, and they hand over their conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. They will continue to persecute the Lamb of God. They are, they are still of one mind, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Um, if I would define one hour then, I would define it as the same, our same understanding of time times half a time. Okay, 1,420 days. Okay, well, 60 days. Okay, it's, it's a limited amount of time of which these things will occur. 
Okay? But it will still happen. There will still be kingdoms that otherwise fight against God's people that make war on the Lamb. Those are the ones who are continually coming under judgment and all the different judgments that we've seen. Okay? So, do I need to find, do I need to count kings? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point. Okay? Do, does John have some assurances that this kingdom will close just like Daniel did? Sure. Okay? Is there more to come? Absolutely. Okay? But that's the note of perseverance that permeates Revelation. Is that, yeah, more of this stuff is to come. Okay, Babylon will continue to influence. The prostitute will have this influence over these kings. You can expect that this behavior to continue. But instead, now he's describing it as one hour. They'll have power for one hour. Okay, the time is the time is limited. Just like our ten days, just like our time times half a time, just like our one thousand four hundred sixty days. Okay, forty two months, all that stuff. Well, it's interesting they were written in such a way if you're not understanding what God is trying to point out to us that you go off on these things, try to count kings. Kingdoms, where there's so many rabbit trails you can run down. Yeah. I agree. Well, I'm just reading that the, pro- the prostitute shows up after all of the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Mm-hmm. And she shows up, and uh, out of no repentance, there, there's no repent, no repent, no repent, and then all of a sudden she shows up, and then the, this is like the collective end to it. I would marvel at that too. After yeah. all that. Yeah. After all that, and now look. And and what's interesting is that like if we if we said that Revelation is trying to paint kind of a single picture, and now we're taking the different aspects of it, and we're getting to see it actually deeper. Like this now colors how we understand the judgments, right? This made the judgment picture deeper. It didn't change. It's not different than the judgment pictures that we've seen so far. It's a deeper picture, right? right? We understand it differently. We understand. Um, we said in chapter twelve, we start to see where all this stuff is coming from. Satan's flashing thrashing around in his wrath because he's been kicked out of heaven. And now we have this picture of um, he's using this prostitute with the kings of the earth and with these um, uh, alternative religious systems and political systems that are otherwise trying to pull God's people away and get them to buy into things and fake things that try to act like they are God or act on ways that God would that are parodies to them. And we start, now we st- things start to take a little bit of shape. We start to recognize these systems throughout some of the worlds that have done that and that have propagated things upon humanity and been that distraction that has kind of caught people up. Um, and so, th- so it, becomes, it becomes a deeper picture um, as opposed to a different or an alternate picture. It continues, it says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, here we go, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Four. Okay, completion everybody. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. They will use her and they will discard her. They, they will treat her like a whore. That, that's the picture we have. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. In that day, would they have seen that as Rome? Yeah. Yeah, I think they would have. Is that Rome for all time? I don't think it's restricted to that. So far, the language in Revelation hasn't restricted us to that. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So, so actually, um, uh, if you guys are reading, so stop reading this. I just want you to listen to it. Okay? I want you to listen. Just listen to it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. 
a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. In a single day. Think of the time frames that we've we've thought of so far. And she is done. In a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is, is the Lord God who has judged her. Now watch the reactions of the kings of the earth. Okay? We, we, we've seen what she's done to the world, okay? her influence upon the world. Watch what the, how the kings of the earth react. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. Oh, good. Good, they have some reaction to her. Why are they weeping? Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since or because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold. You're going to lose count because you're going to run out of fingers. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. It's 28. you got a 7 and a 4. Okay? But it ends in, what are they ultimately dealing in? Human souls. Human souls. Human souls. All All those goods, all those fine goods that were tied up and that the merchants of the world, the king of the world, are in cahoots with Babylon 4. And what are they ultimately dealing in? It's deceit because they're dealing in souls. Human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? We've heard something like that before, have we not? Who can come against the beast? What city was like this? How could this have happened? But why is it great? Because of its wealth. And what is it ultimately dealing dealing in in people's souls? And they drew dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich, rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For, because 
Your merchants were the great ones of the earth. Who did you, who did you rise to greatness? Who did you lift up above all others? Your merchants, your good dealers, your wealth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. I said this was, um, this is the most indicting of, frankly, of wealth anywhere in the Bible. But it does not allow us to disassociate what wealth does to people, to kingdoms, what sits on the backs of other people. And, and that's, a, that's a blindness that I would feel more comfortable to go without. Because if you, see, if you think about what kings of the earth, like what makes them kings, well, they deal in goods. Okay? They're surrounded by power, but power is demonstrated by money, what they have, what they control. And this has connotations of sexual morality, but like biblically, it's basically you whoring yourself out to something that isn't God. And the things that you value very much falls under the category here of our love of goods. You have, you have 28 lists of the, of the cargo that we're disappointed because Babylon is no longer doing business with us. The things that show us how powerful we are. And the truth is, is what sits on the backs of these things. I used to... I used to get really irritated with the, like, um, not, not necessarily sweatshop stories, because those always sounded bad, but they're like um, places where you can buy stuff real cheap. And they're like, hey, who does that sit on the back of? Shoot. I feel like we're a bit of the kings of the earth. It sits on the backs of somebody somewhere who's not in my country, who I don't really have to think about, but the truth is I live in a broader world than that. And I probably buy into kings of the earth propaganda without wanting to because of the things that I want that I feel like I deserve things I desire things that I feel like I work hard for and the truth is it's never in the perspective I feel like I, I in relatively speaking in my country that's true okay relatively speaking do I work hard do I deserve money that they send me yeah relatively but am I, am I saying that the lady that's picking rice in the field doesn't deserve that because she's getting paid junk and it's, it's a bit of the kings of the earth thing I don't have the answer for this I don't know how to digest the fact that I was born here and that like I could give up all my wealth and then become someone else's burden on the state. That doesn't sound right. But I guess one of the things that I think we have to walk away from a chapter 18 is to say it's not, it's not that simple. It's not simple only as far as I can see, right? Like it's not as simple as, you know, can I, I have to deal with my world in not just a relative context, but it's the whole, it's the whole context. Um, and he very much seems to tie together this this prostitute that is perverting the kings of the earth and is tied it almost exclusively to wealth and how they react to it and like what they've been caught up in and how what um, what we used as a measure of greatness and so i'm not i don't feel like in my daily life that i'm intentionally contributing to that but i do wonder as a society whether we have to take some a little bit more responsibility than we have on how that's being contributed like from a broad perspective. Is that, does all that make sense? So, um, Absolutely not. You're, you're out on that, huh? <laughs> out on that one. That woman who's working in that rice field could be just as happy and content, or maybe more so than you are. And because of where you come from, you're doing a comparative. Comparisons, you know, you, you could go through the whole Bible, don't compare, don't compare, don't compare. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying we should, it's not relative to our thinking, but I think that that example it, is it, not. It begins to to be 
to me to have a that her life has more weight than mine, um, or that my life has more weight than hers, and it doesn't—it doesn't matter to God. Well, no, no. So actually, that's what I would say. Um, it's probably worth communicating that better. So I'm not saying that that uh, I have the desire to bring her up falsely, like the thought that she needs to be brought up to mine. Um, I think there. I think the blindness is is it says um, what we've accepted from a relative perspective of what we are owed. And truth is, is like her, the nature of her perseverance is not necessarily descriptive of the, um, or does not necessarily validate the, um, uh, the wealth that sits in mine. That is not particularly necessary relative to other parts of the world of which they, like they're actually starving, right? People are actually starving on the weight of my what? On the weight of my comfort, on the weight of my, um, of my indulgence. And so relatively speaking, like from a societal standpoint, my life probably isn't considered an indulgence. But I don't know that I get to just stop it at what my, of what my society finds to be valuable. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was, when we were talking about this, I always think about uh, the people that go to Jesus and be like, and he's like, oh, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will, you know, will recognize. Didn't we heal people in your name? He's like, away from me, you workers of inequity. I mean, really... If I didn't subscribe to Netflix, I could feed a family in Africa for a month. Eight bucks. Yeah. Is that just? Is that right? And that's where, like, uh, I don't know. I'm probably fleshing this out in the same way I'm fleshing, fleshing out when I think violence is okay. I don't know. I probably lean mostly towards nonviolence, but, like, I don't, something seems like, it, you know, I feel like there's a defense at some point. But, but so, so right, but the point that that's the point I'm getting at though is like, is there um, am I called then to to not have a to not drive to not right like like things that otherwise are relative for our society, so that uh, someone else over there um, can otherwise have more than their society otherwise even would even permit or allow. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know the right answers to those things. But you're, the relative point I think is certainly true, which is. Um, our nature, our na- our, uh, the nature of our justice has to extend beyond the relative nature of our society. I would agree with that completely. But then when it comes down to your list, you said it yourself, at the very end of it, it's the cost of the souls. Yeah. So is my purchase of a car costing a soul somewhere? I think the broad... Th- that's where I think this is probably a more... You br- see what I'm saying? Yes. And so like, he's, he's given a complete list for a reason. Right, right a seven, t- seven times four, a notion of completion for reason, right. which is to say, I think broadly our, um, probably our, our wor- actually this very much falls in a worship of money, right? This is Jesus as well, the it sinking. it comes back to all the parables, right? Yeah. It comes back to every single parable. It comes back to the parable of the, the leper, the, you know, the ten lepers, and only one comes back to be thankful, and it comes back to the widow giving everything she had when the rich guy didn't give any, and... All of those types of things. It's a heart issue. Agreed. It's a soul issue. Yep. And so that, I think, is what we should be measuring. If we're going to measure, right, if we're going to compare. Yeah. If we're going to measure, is it costing souls? So I guess the only thing to think of then is, is, and maybe this is coming back to where we came from in Chapter 16, which is... How do I make sure that I'm not otherwise being deceived by 
that the relative comfort level, right? And so that, that's one of the things. And frankly, that's probably a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hand, will have to handle that. Right. I, I, there's not a chart in here for a reason. But like, I think one of the things that we are I do probably do ourselves a disservice in is to go through um, and not see the indictment of of wealth here from like a king's. It, it's it's a notion of worship is really what it is, right? Like if, if you if I can't love both, okay, if I can't worship money. Um, like the existence of it is not wrong. The having of it is not wrong. God even bestows it on certain people um, out, of, out of grace, right? Like I, I don't know how we're supposed to understand Solomon um, if, if there's not a reason for that, right? But, but if, it is that, if that is where our worship, our value comes from um, and the inequity that it creates is in the world, like if we don't recognize that as a risk, then I think we miss some of the, um, the success of the false prophet in 16, which seems to otherwise fall under where these kings of the earth have come from, right? If Babylon is doing this very thing, and that's what they're tempting with, and what has succeeded in tempting those kings of the earth away from Christ and away from God in general is wealth, then I think we have to at least be honest with ourselves that this may present a bigger risk than we've otherwise admitted. Well, that's one of Satan's great lies when he's tempting Jesus, too. Just worship me up. It's all mine to give to you. Look at all of it. Look at all of it. Yeah, and it's his to give. It's just not Jesus didn't need it. He didn't want it, and frankly could own it later if he wanted it. Right. Yeah. Why can't it be a sense of weight like you talked in the past? What do you mean? Uh, the 28 and the one, the soul. Uh-huh. I mean, the weight of the, I'm, I'm thinking that Satan sees souls much more important, and he uses the wealth to get to the soul, because it, I, he, would be rather, he would rather trade a soul than trade a merchant. He would rather trade... I would agree, yes. He would rather... And, and yep. the exchange in heaven is relationships that we have with other people. Yep. I mean, that's the currency there. It's not how much you had or how many... It's how many relationships you had, how much you uh-huh. shared Jesus. So he's talking about the latent power of the soul that Satan sees how much weight it has. We need to see how much weight it has. And it's not much to compare to saying, this is futile, this is important. You know, I, I just don't see the comparisons because of the relative... It's in, but it's in the list. How do you remove it from the list? It's in the list. Right, like he didn't point it out differently. Although, but but I think I, I, I'm definitely in agreement with what you're saying. So I, I think that the point is to say it is through it is through these things that ultimately you end up dealing in human souls. Like that, that's what I, that's why I think it's connected to the list. Is is for me to think is, is right um, when we talk about heaven worth the streets of gold. Do I think golds are literally street like the streets are literally gold? No, it's an impression of like what we find extremely valuable here is something we will tread upon. In heaven, and I would agree when when um, Jesus comes and he binds the strong man to take the to take his goods. That's people. That's a soul. That's a soul thing. So I would agree with that completely. So I think the point here is though is that if this is what the kings of the earth are fighting for, um, ultimately what it points to is their ability to distract people, drag souls over to that area, and worship those things. Um, and and through like as you as, as we participate in a system in that way, just recognize that the impact of that is the, um, the deflection of souls away from the kingdom of God over to a kingdom that otherwise worships money. So, yes, I, I would agree with that in that respect. Yeah, sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. We think too much about how important we are to the kingdom, what we can do. When really it's just the weight of the souls around us, the ones that we need to pay attention to. People are... I deal in missions. People are rich. They have money. They give. Yeah. They give. This is an important part of missions. Important part of the kingdom expanding yeah. here and there, here and there. So it's really hard for me to just swallow that. I'm gonna put all that on the table because there's some woman picking rice and I can't have Netflix. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? No, yeah, and that's what I'm saying is like I think there's there's probably a too there's probably a too far to that because I don't know that, that like um, the broad trajectory of scripture doesn't 
seem to call us to that. It doesn't say because, um, uh, you need to help people not be a burden upon institutions by becoming a burden on institutions. Like that, that, that actually doesn't seem like what Scripture is doing. And when people are sharing among themselves in Acts 2, that doesn't prescribe. There's a guy that sells a, sells a part of his field, right? But it didn't say he sold absolutely everything he had and put it in a communal pot. Um, so that, that's, that's what I'm saying. We've got to be careful um, because we will take aspects of this, and then all of a sudden we, we're like, well, the Bible calls us to communism. I, that's, not, that's not the trajectory of Acts 2. Um, so like, I think you could run with this too far. But what... Um, I think maybe what I'm meaning to say here from Is It on the Table is, like, be careful about being deceived as if it's not something that can otherwise drag you away and that otherwise contributes to people be worshiping the wrong thing. And so we gotta, we got to recognize where money gets tied into. And so um, maybe how we deal with our money, we, we just have to recognize that that is a risk that comes with money. It just is. And it, see, and it has the ability to otherwise drag people um, or point people to a false worship somewhere else. And that's a success of, of the false prophet and of the prostitute. Okay? So, yeah, does that mean I have to give up my Netflix? I don't, I'm not, I don't think so. Okay? <laughs> it is, here's the deal, though. It does put you in a stark relief to think, though, like, really, 8 bucks can do that. There's a lot that 8 bucks can do. And so... Um, it just, it caused me, I think if, if we have to take some broad things away from this, is that your world is bigger than where you're at. I think that's true. Um, to recognize that Jesus very much plotted money against worshiping him or worshiping money. Okay? So it's a risk that we run, especially when we're surrounded by it. Okay? Does it mean that poverty is holy? No, I think that's, I think that's false. Okay? But, does it, but it otherwise calls to something that is successful at points to point people away from Jesus? Yeah. So I think if we, if we don't keep that perspective, then I think we're running a risk. Well, it's been a common theme throughout God's word of where our wealth is and what we consider wealth. Mm-hmm. And that's true. This, this... Our, our, worth, our worth in God's sight, not in, not in the world's sight. Exactly what you're saying about, you know, what are we replacing worshiping God with? Yeah. What? <laughs> well, my heart is so deceitful and dishonest <laughs> in every way. I can be contributing those things just to seat my seat in heaven. You know, it's, it's a... It's a paradox. It's it's a true paradox when we come before God and what we're doing because I am a deceitful person. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. That's what I was born into. So it, it's hard to give $8 to a, a kingdom over there that's going to line the pocket of a king and he's going to give two of it to somebody who's starving. It's a tough thing to say. It, it is. I, I think it is a tough thing to say. And frankly, if you start tracing everywhere your money goes, like you won't give money anywhere. You'll never buy anything from anybody because some deceitful king of the earth has got his hands on it in some way or another. That's a t- it's a tough role to live. Okay, um, It's actually to steal from John. It calls for wisdom. It's, there's some discernment in it. Okay, um, Just recognize that it is something it is something that we have to at least have as part of your radar. Okay? All right. Thank you. Uh, actually, let's stop there. We got 19. The people are rejoicing in heaven. Um, and then we need to start dealing with the rider on the white horse. A very gross looking marriage of the supper of the lamb where people come together and start getting eaten by birds. Um, that's Ezekiel stuff. Um, yeah, so, so let's hope to close out Revelation next week. Um, we need to get through. He's, he still has two more people to deal with. He's dealt with Babylon. We've got to deal with a couple beasts. He's got to dispatch a Satan. He's got to make a great promise uh, of which all this is pointing to. And then some warnings on uh, other stuff from John ending snap in 21, 22. 22. That's our goal for next week. Uh, I might post some other stuff on the, um, on the Kings and stuff this week just to, if you, in case you want some more stuff to read. Do you have a question, Sarah? No, I'm 
sorry. Okay, that's okay. Uh, all right, all right, let's call that a night. Thanks, guys. Thanks, oh. Uh, hey there, guys. This has been. Hey, uh, I know that the, this particular class is over, but as I listened back to the audio, there were just a few things that I thought uh, weren't quite as clear as I wanted them to be. So I thought I'd do a, a just a quick follow up to some of the stuff that we were talking about in class uh, on this last recording. Uh, so the first one has to do with the characters. So um, we, we haven't put a specific point on the dragon. Uh, well, we had the dragon we have. That's Satan. But the the first beast, the the second beast, um, and and Babylon. Uh, I think we, we haven't put like a real pin on. And so um, I'm not sure that we're supposed to, to a certain extent. Um, but if I had to give you some generalities, I'd say uh, the dragon, the first beast, the one from the land, and the second beast, the one from the sea or the false prophet, are Satan. And then uh, the satanic kind of political system and religious support of the political system, respectively. Okay, so like combined things that try to take God's people away from God's business. And there's a lot of mechanizations that can do that. Maybe it's governments, maybe it's false religions. Um, but all, all are kind of functioning as tools of Satan to try to draw in your allegiance and that kind of thing. Um, so when we see things like kings of the earth, um, we should likely, um, you could see those as demons. Um, that's possible. I just don't think it's likely. Um, they're more likely to be political authorities or those types of people that are working within kind of this infrastructure that have, um, that has power hungry or that kind of draws people away from God at the behest of Satan, uh, the first and second beasts as the political powers, religious powers, those types of things. And, you know, um, you know, Rome's a good example during that time. Um, because they, there was, those things were very much combined. America doesn't have that. We don't have where we have this combination. We have this at least self-imposed separation of, of church and state where there's a lot of parts of the world where that isn't the case. So some of these symbols make a lot more sense. Um, kind of these hegemonic um, organizations where religious authority and government authority are kind of tied together. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of what we're trying to, what a picture might be trying to paint from some of that stuff. So um, I, I, I'm not going to point a finger at a specific person or a direct entity because I don't think John's actually being that specific, but he's pointing us towards basically any powerful or power obtaining infrastructure um, that might be used um, as, a, as a method of deceit um, by Satan to otherwise point us to a different kingdom, point us to a different allegiance um, than God, heaven, and that kind of stuff. So um, on Armageddon, so the final battle, um, we said, that, oh, sorry, let me just to clarify. So Armageddon, this was a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase Har-Megiddo, which means Mount Megiddo. Um, there are Old Testament images of a final battle of history, uh, but those are without exception centered around Jerusalem and Mount Zion or its surrounding mountains. And we had t- touched on Ezekiel 38, 39 um, as kind of examples of that. So n- nothing is ever separate or uh, put distinctly around uh, this Mount Megiddo. Um, conversely, Megiddo was actually a plain. It's not a mountain. Um, and it's a two days walk from Jerusalem. Okay, so kind of like um, Babylon, the Euphrates River, stuff like that. Armageddon is likely a figurative use. Um, it probably means the whole world, or at least kind of a place where historically we know where these these battles have happened um, between God's people and others, um, and it's the battle with which the ultimate battle between God and His enemies is fought. Um, I guess hypothetically, because you know, not actually fought, given that there is no actual battle. Uh, but you kind of get what I'm saying.
Um, and as for that final battle, we do see it in chapter 16, and it's recapitulated again in chapter 19, um, and then chapter 2021, 20, as we kind of see the different people fall under God's judgment and on the wrong side of that battle. Um, that We, we kind of see that same thing happening over and over and over again. Um, and that same image really permeates through the minor prophets and also uh, guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel and stuff like that. So um, that shouldn't be surprised, but that's, that's what we mean when we're talking about Armageddon. Um, there's not a physical location for that. Megiddo is, but there's not a mountain. And the plane reference is interesting because I think it's Zechariah 14. Um, it talks about kind of marching over the plains of the earth, and Revelation has a hint of that as well. So it, it's an interesting reference, but it's not likely a literal reference. Um, we talked about some demonic, the demonic frogs, and uh, April had actually mentioned the possibility of the frog plagues in chapter 16, pointing us back to Hecht, um, which is the Egyptian goddess of resurrection. And uh, I, I couldn't think of a, of a great connection there uh, besides the one that was, had already been made within that same plague in Exodus. But it's interesting now that I think about it, if you're looking at this Egyptian goddess of, of resurrection, that's an interesting potential connection given the resurrection parody that kind of goes on with the first beast. Um, it has because this mock uh, came back from the dead type of thought. And so um, it's possible there. I don't know if it's uh, completely tangible, but uh, I think that's certainly a possibility. Um, also, I, I, say, I had said something incorrect. I had said that the Euphrates uh, River was diverted for Cyrus to cross as part of, of bringing Israel into exile. That's not right. Um, that, that's not the, it's not the right event. The event is tied to Cyrus's conquering of Babylon, um, not, uh, not to taking them into exile. So that's, I just want to clarify that. That was a mistake. Um, and then on Babylon itself, so I thought... Um, I, I think that there was things that were a little unclear about the seven heads and mountains when it comes to trying to understand them uh, literally as Roman Roman emperors. So let me see. Um, let me kind of reiterate this too. Uh, here's the scripture was. This is in Revelation 17. It says, "This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little little while." And so, if this is Rome, um, which does seem relevant, I'd said that um, I have trouble with that. I think the more I think about that, I think this does, although it could also be, or probably is, also nations over time. I think that's what the 10 is pointing to. Um, I think Rome is actually in picture here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that back. Um, and eat, whether you take it as mountains or hills, uh, that word, I don't think it actually matters. I think, given the seven hills within the city of Rome, or the concept of a ruling kingdom as a mountain, I think either way we're probably okay seeing this as Rome. But we do have a couple choices. Choices, um, to describe that scripture if we understand this as Rome. So either it's a list of kings that is specific and it's an actual count of uh, and it's an actual count, or it's figurative in general. And the issue with the specific count is it doesn't seem to result in a valid reverence on that seventh, eighth king. Because um, here's the list of Roman rulers through 96 AD, and we're gonna for our purposes we're gonna ignore Julius Caesar and start counting at Augustus. Although the Roman historian Suetonius doesn't do that, he actually would include Caesar uh, Julius Caesar as as one of them, which jacks up our count even more. Um, but for this thought process to be potentially accurate as it being modern day Roman in a literal count, um, it helps to to start at Augustus. So the list of your emperors are Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero would be five, Galba, Otho, Vitellius. Vespasian, that's the uh, year of four emperors, and then Titus, and then Domitian, who we said was ruling during the time frame, at least where I think that uh, Revelation is written. Now, 
if that's if this particular section of Revelation is to point to a literal current Rome, then the fifth rule that is currently reigning would be Nero, uh, and that's part of the reason some folks date the book to just before 70 A.D. So that's understandable. But there are a couple issues with that. Uh, the first is is there was persecution of Christians during the reign of Nero that could work as the back drop um, to the encouragement that John is giving the seven churches of Asia Minor. The problem is, is that that persecution was almost entirely directed at the Christians within the city of Rome itself, not the churches in Asia Minor, not kind of broad uh, the Roman Empire. Um, it, it wasn't even that general area of Asia Minor. It was primarily happening within the city of Rome. It's kind of a persecution thing of Nero directly within the city. So as such, that particular background d- does seem to be a stretch. I, so we have to kind of narrow down the geography there. Um, that might be pushing it a little bit as to as to whether Nero makes sense as that reference. Additionally, if the literal account gives us Nero was the fifth king or the emperor that is currently reigning, that would put the, the consequential seventh king, the one where this se- thing seems to come to an end, as Otho. And that's Otho who rules for 91 days and commits suicide after he loses the Battle of uh, uh, Bedrachium. And uh, the eighth king would be the, then be Vitellius, uh, who was the leader of the army against Otho, and he only ruled for eight months and three days and then was murdered by the troops of the next ruler of Vespasian. So the truth is, is if, if um, you can make a stretch, I think, argument that the fifth king or emperor is, is Nero in this picture, but to, to follow that through would mean Otho uh, or Vitellius are going to be your seventh and eighth, and they simply don't make any sense. Um, now, there's, there's some folks who try to get around this. They try to eliminate those three short-term emperors, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and kind of keep counting from there. Um, however, that puts us at Titus, who has an impact on the Jews. He's the one that led the army during the fall of the temple in AD 70, but his reign doesn't signal the end of the Roman Empire or any, anything that I think we would be able to call it as an end. Um, he actually was reigning after 70 AD, so he was important to the Jews, but his reign was, was beyond that. And so... Um, I don't think it, it actually doesn't make sense with the trajectory of that. Um, it's, it's also a little bit shallow given how we just haven't had literal counts up to this point. Um, so it's more likely that it's going to be uh, figurative. It's uh, that, that that five to seven is supposed to mean something else uh, and the further ten would be as well. So how should we take this? I think the seven kings likely represents the time of Rome's entire reign of which more has passed than is to come. All right, There are five in. There's seven, eight total. Um, it's, it's a look at Roman Empire as a whole and their reign upon the earth. They were the prime persecutors during that time, um, but not supposed to be literal counts of emperors, and that makes sense with seven as completion. Uh, however, once it falls, a complete number of kingdoms, that's the ten, will follow it, doing much the same things in much the same way under the very same false trinity type of influences. And that echoes closely what we read in Daniel 7 as Daniel considers the fourth beast that kind of promises that there will be no rest for his people under the rule of powerful kingdoms who war against God's people, even in the midst of the vision of the glorious Son of Man. So he kind of has the same reaction John does, which is, you know, the thing that is persecuting you now will eventually go away, um, but it will be followed by something else um, that will be bad, or just as bad or worse. And that was in Daniel's case. And I think we kind of get the same uh, inference here too. So those are some things that I just want to kind of clarify. I um, uh, there were some points that things I said that just weren't flat out weren't right, and there are other things I thought that just were unclear. So I want to go back over those with you. I appreciate you guys listening, and uh, good luck at your your one class away, and then you will finally be done with the Revelation study. Thanks for hanging out with me. Goodbye.